Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Yeah, no, Andrea, I got to say, I, I think like you are in the less than one percentile of people who, who lack baseball knowledge. It's, in this country, it is truly difficult to know less about baseball nothing like you only know that she knows there is a thing she knows the difference baseball. between a baseball and softball now actually oh wait which one's the yellow one the softball right good job yeah but she guessed that <laughs> she, she she looked up Welcome to the Voice San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrea Lopez Viafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. And on remote connection, we have fellow managing editor Andrew Keats. What's up, Andy? How you doing, pal? Coming up on the show this week, we have an update on our main story from last week about a family struggle with homelessness. We'll pass along some good news for once. Very excited about that. Plus, pay incentives for teachers used to be taboo, at least to San Diego Unified School Board, but now they can't recruit for a key educator position, and they're changing their tone. We'll explain. Finally, the state's decision to allow a local housing project to break the San Diego coastal height limit, at least the one imposed by voters, was a big deal. Now we have more information about how that decision came together and the state's role in it. Annie got some emails. Good emails. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Last week, we also talked about the... uh, potential or what we thought was almost a done deal settlement in the 101 Ash saga. And then they opened Monday with the news trickling through all the all the reporters that they weren't actually going to have the settlement vote. It was off. So we have some theories, obviously, about why that might have happened. But just some background. 
Remember, the city has been suing the entity that sold or sort of leased to own the tower of 101 Ashtree, the former Sempra headquarters across the street from City Hall, and the tower across the plaza from City Hall, Civic Center Plaza, excuse me, CCP. CCP. Yeah. CCP. As distinguished CCP. from CCP. Cab, Cab and Cobb. Cob. Right, Cob. correct. <laughs> that, uh, that Cab had purchased Cob, or CCP. <laughs> and the inhabitants of Cab purchased CCP to relocate the staffers that worked in Cobb. Uh, because right. of the right, right, yeah. because of the, the obvious problems with Cobb, yeah. obvious problems that Cobb, Cab could which fix. Yeah, felt doubly at Cab. Yeah, so they uh, we were going to settle with as a city with the the landlord. Mm-hmm. Now our case, as uh, represented by the city attorney, is that this deal, this lease to own deal for both these buildings, was corrupt and illegal and should be clawed back because. The broker who had been assisting the city with all of its real estate needs like this for some time had a conflict because he had a contract with the landlord, the seller, that he was going to enjoy a significant portion of the profits or have to pay a significant portion of their losses if the city didn't make this deal. Right. So the city was arguing that that was kind of a, that was obviously a motivation for them to get the deal accepted. Right, so that it was it was illegal that that he had that conflict, and the remedy that the law provides is that those things should be unraveled and clawed back. Now, remember, we left last week with the city attorney's objections to them settling the suit with the landlord, and we and the argument that uh, the mayor and others seem to have that this would put to rest a lot of these issues, and our speculation that part of what motivates them is that they were looking forward to having all these buildings. Cab Cobbs, CCP, 101 Ash, all of them under one ownership, the city's ownership, and they could redevelop the whole area. Right. And I think we talked about how they acknowledged, you know, that, well, this is kind of like a crappy situation and we got to do something. Yeah. And and I remember one of the things we brought up was like, well, if you're, if you're going to settle with the landlord, but not with the broker we're talking about, Jason Hughes, what what's going on there? Because the case is the same for both, right? If your case is strong against the landlord, then it's strong against Hughes or vice versa. If it's strong against Hughes, why is it, why would you stop against the landlord? And so uh, obviously they want the billing, but something happened Monday. Andy, there's a few options about what could have happened. One is maybe they didn't have the votes for the settlement. The mayor said, well, we just wanted to give people, they asked for more time to con- to, to digest the whole uh, settlement and the analysis about it. So we're giving them more time, but they usually don't go forward with things unless they know they have the vote. So either they lost the votes or maybe never counted them. It's possible that this is the first time that the procedural explanation is true. Yeah. Uh, but I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, <laughs> um, no, I think, I mean, the, 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 the official explanation is that the, the public, there was a that they heard and understood the public outcry for more time, so they're going to provide it and come back in a month. Um, and so, so I guess there's an option that they either lost the vote or some new bit of information came up, and we have no idea about that. Also, we're just very, very silly people for assuming that something would come to any sort of culmination. <laughs> 
was a, a very dumb thing to think. It was docketed. Every time we do it, it that seems like something I, you is, can rest on. It, and it was it was on the agenda for Monday to be settled. So, it, is, it is profound how many times I have decided to kick that football. <laughs> and always missed. Huh? I pull it away every time. Well, we will uh, update you when and if that ever comes back or any developments along the way. Well, last week we also featured the story of the Rashke family. So Lisa Halverstadt came on the podcast, talked to Lopez here about her story following the Rashke family and, and their odyssey through homelessness. They they showed up in San Diego with an RV after having had jobs here and uh, got jobs here, but could not find a place. And then it's just a real heartbreaking story about how many times they've fell apart right as they were getting things together, right? Like the they'd have their RV impounded, lots of tickets. It was just a very bleak description of just how hard it is to be homeless and how expensive it is, frankly. So we ran that story and a lot of things happened since then. First, the city had a uh, city council had a big discussion about safe parking lots, uh, the kind of parking lot that if it had the access that they do now have with this new approval, of 24 hours, this family could have benefited from that. That went forward as a discussion at the city council. And the council president, Shanilo Rivera, invited Natalie Rashke, who we featured, to come and talk about the story and what happened and her experience at that hearing. And she discussed how even as she started getting getting connected with services, even if you have the money, this is what's so interesting. Even if you have the money for renting a place, like often it's 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 even harder to actually find a place, get somebody to accept you, go on from there. Right? Doing because I'm a mom of four, they're going to help me pay my first month's rent and deposit, but they're not. I I get no help looking for these places or what places are available that are going to take you know the voucher that I have or the help that I have. Because you're already coming as getting help from the city or the government. You don't look like a good candidate in that sense either. Uh, We have an update on the family. So after our story ran, the Housing Commission connected with them. And uh, they both are getting help. They raised money uh, from their own GoFundMe. They got into a hotel for a few days. And they are getting a permanent three-bedroom apartment in Mission Valley. So uh, the only problem is is that they can't move into it until August. So uh, they are going to be needing some safe parking and other temporary options until then. Uh, Hotels have been running about $250 a night for them uh, and some uh, donors have helped. So I felt a couple ways with this. One is I was was overjoyed that our journalism helped somebody like this and, and helped them so immediately that they got the attention and that the city reacted as fast as it could and is making policy adjustments and adjustments to help this family. But it also felt like she kind of won a little bit of a lottery for folks in, in their situation. And it, it nothing systemic is changing and there's still probably thousands of people that could use that kind of help and, and we're not going to be able to profile all of them. Yeah, I think the, the, 
the thing with this story and and even from the moment when we were just editing it and I was telling Andy that I think there's so many points in this family story where they just couldn't get their head above water and you know you go through this story you go through this article and it's a story about this family but then when you start thinking about how all the other people on the street or you know couch surfing or living in their cars just like this family are dealing with those same systemic issues it's 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 really sad and so I, I agree I mean you know I'm really happy for them and they have hit the lottery but there's so many other families going through the same thing. Yeah. The same week we wrote a story, uh, Jesse Marks wrote a story about how quickly a ticket that you get um, in your car for like, say, no registration can turn into a massive debt. And if you're already struggling, can just burden you for years. And it's like, and and then that financing is is like key to financing so much of the actual judicial courts infrastructure. They, they depend on people being trapped in this kind of debt mess. And I think that, that those, all these stories always come up with that same sort of reality that like, if you start to fall behind in this, in this circus we have going here, you have a really hard time climbing out of it. And there, it's like a, it's almost just a video game of things being thrown at you except that it's your life and, and, and you end up on the street or, or you know, worse uh, along the way. And it's no wonder that so many people get uh, depressed or sick or uh, addicted along the way. Well, it feels like you just can't catch a break. Like no matter what you do, something just keeps, just keeps pushing you back. And so what do you do at that point? After we published this story, the mayor's office, the city council president's office, the housing commission you know, housing commissioners got involved directly and independently. And it was, it was only through that sort of sheer force of will of many of these powerful people that the Rashkis were able to receive housing. Um, and, you know, it, not only are we not able to, to, um, to profile everybody who may be in a situation like this, it's just, uh, almost illustrative of, of of how uncaring the system is that you need that level of intervention for one person to just rise above the fray and, and be put into a household. Um, and similarly, the sort of sense of uh, emptiness that you're sort of describing, Scott, where you're, you're happy, but yet it feels so much like nothing has really been fixed because of such a lottery-like result. I, I just, I imagine that that must be exactly how people who work in this space feel every day yeah. that like, you know, that they do uh, get to place people with vouchers into a house. And I'm sure that they have to celebrate that victory every time it happens, mm -hmm. even while fully knowing that every, for every person with a voucher that was put into a house, you've got, you know, m more than 10 people who are not so lucky. Um, and, and just what a, what a long way we are from any sort of uh, lasting, meaningful, sustainable solution. Well, it also is a vivid illustration of just the exact lag that is in the system right now for the most plugged in potential supported person, right? Like think about it. If, if this, 
if this family has had essentially the entire city infrastructure around these issues mobilized on their behalf, right? We run the story, the city council president, mayor, and housing commission all mobilize as much as they can for them. And then they are pulled out and, and they get a permanent place in Mission Valley in August. That there is a, there is for, for even the people who are mobilized for the most, the quickest, the most possible action you can see from your local region, it that you still can't get a place till August is is really interesting and and vivid illustration of just how big the gap is between the need for permanent housing and the uh, availability. So a couple months ago, maybe. Yeah. You sat me down in the conference room and you gave me a Scott talk. <laughs> um, people here that work at Voice of San Diego get Scott talks. Um, I find them interesting. It's Thank one you. of his employment <laughs> benefits. It's ri- it's written into his contract that he gets to do that. <laughs> in the job <laughs> the job description. But you like him. Like no, I, I like him. Thank you. Um, Andy likes them too, but he just has to be mean about it. I'm being nice. Okay. <laughs> I'm just no, happy but- <laughs> that you get to do the thing that you love. That yeah. makes me happy, knowing Kate. that you're happy. <laughs> so um, we sat down and you were breaking down the super complex education system and what kind of stories to look out for. And um, I don't even think we finished because no. <laughs> there was so much. Yeah. Um, but one of those I had different questions about like, well, why don't they offer money for teachers for certain schools? and um, you know, why can't we have teachers who have a lot of experience teaching at schools that really need teachers with experience? And you broke that down for me. But that ties into a story that we ran this week. Yes. One of the things that has always bothered me is that there are schools out there that deal with massive turnover every year. It's just and it's and it's really hard for them to build a culture of success, of accountability, of the principles to get sort of they're grounding and, and create a, a stable environment so that they can deliver results for these kids. And these kids in areas that are often the most and traditionally underserved areas. And so you look at like Knox Middle School, for example, we did a we started adding average years of teaching experience at these schools so you could track in a way like turnover in them. And so mm-hmm. at adding Knox, to our parents' guide. Yes, yeah, sorry, in our parents' guide, our annual parents' guide to uh, San Diego schools. And we had at Knox, for example, we had registered 9.4 as the average year's teaching experience in that. And that's, you know, probably uh, acceptable in some industries, but compared to other schools, especially schools that, that are doing a lot better in all the outcomes you would expect, in, and also in things like chronic absenteeism and stuff like that, that they're, look at uh, De, Portolo, De Portola Middle School in Tierra Santa, 16.9 years average experience. What happens is they they come in, teachers have to start at a school like Knox, mm-hmm. and then they get out as soon as they can. And that's all based on seniority. And so for years, we've had this conversation, we're like, can you do something, anything, to provide these kids at Knox a better experience, a more stable environment where there's not so much constant turnover, where teachers aren't so excited to get out of there, and, and seniority is not sort of punishing that school and its culture all the time. 
And the single answer that has always come up is, well, maybe you could pay people more to teach there. Just change the dynamics. And that has always been hostily rejected. And so this month, uh, Will Hunsberry and, and others who saw this news were a little bit surprised to see San Diego Unified School District announced that it was going to offer $10,000 signing bonuses for new special education teachers to deal with the shortage of people who wanted to do that work at the prices they were paying. And that work is vital work, similar to teaching in traditionally underserved areas that have cultures that need more stability. They were having trouble recruiting people for that. And um, they're offering an incentive to change that dynamic. And so Will, I thought, did a great job in, in his piece kind of exploring, was this the first of their efforts to maybe break that taboo as sort of a progressive union-influenced school board to support some sort of more flexibility to kind of change that dynamic? And basically the answer he got back was no. <laughs> <laughs> so just for this occasion. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I thought was most interesting was was an an old quote that um, Will had from Richard Barrera, the leader of the school board, who had said years ago when Will asked him about incentive pay to go to work in um, underserved schools or you know sco- schools that that most need um, uh, to create a stable environment with more veteran teachers, and um, what Richard Barrera said then was, "That's the last thing we want." that then you would have people who would only be going there because there was money in it. And what you want is people who go and go to those schools because their heart is in it. Um, and if you simply apply that logic, then you're saying here that you've done something dire to the special education classrooms of this school because you would now have people who are only going to be taking that job because there was a $10,000 signing bonus in it. Now, I don't think that's actually something to worry about. But if we take on face value what Richard Brayer said about the idea of ter- using this very similar incentive structure to get people into schools that need improvement, that is what you would necessarily believe about the decision to apply this to special education classrooms. Yeah, and... and uh- just also add that like the heart hasn't worked (laughs) (laughs) and so at some point what are you going to do to change that dynamic i mean you're going to just give them more inspirational speeches but make them watch stand by me what what's gonna what's what are they going to do well you can have like your heart can be set on wanting to help underserved communities students who are underserved but if you're a teacher with little experience and all the teachers around you are teachers with little experience, then all these, you know, traumas that you're being exposed to, things you're seeing your children deal with, you know, homelessness or whatever it is, right? Like, that weighs heavily on you. Even if you have the heart in it, you're going to say, well, you know, nobody really here around me has a lot of experience. Help me go through this, learn how to deal with what situations my students are dealing with. And if now I have more seniority, then, you know, I do have the heart in it. But like, I'm also thinking about myself. I'm also a human, like teachers are humans too. So they're, you know, obviously going to choose an option to move to a school where you're surrounded by people who can support you. But, you know, if you have the heart and you have (laughs) $10,000, that might make it easier. And maybe you get more people to stay. And it it could change the dynamic, the culture that and make it easier for for some, you know, people to then stay longer after that. It, it, something has to break in that. 
But it doesn't look yeah, like it's going to. Yeah, I mean, gonna... the pu- public policy that seeks to solve problems by a- appealing to people's uh, better selves and acting in contravention of their financial interests is is does not have an especially good track record. Um, but I, I would ask Scott, do you do you were you at all um, convinced by Richard Barrera's? Um, this is with Will um, in this most recent story, his attempt to distinguish between paying teachers extra to fill a staffing shortage versus paying them extra to help schools that need it most in that, uh, I guess the sentiment being there isn't a staffing shortage at, you know, Knox elementary. Um, it's just a sort of, uh, it's like this sort of creature of the, uh, the, of the, seniority system that that people are under experienced but they are there is that a distinction that holds up to you i i mean it's it's one i guess to cling to sure you can say that staffing is adequate at these schools uh, but i think that the the outcomes are are not i don't think anyone would look at some of the the schools and the situations they're in and the turnover the constant turnover there and say that this is ideal that's what you want so what is if not if not this, then what is the plan to address it? And that'd be fine if there was something obvious there. But but for years, and I again, I think if you, it, this is just one of the many myriad education issues that if you had it in a different place, if half the teachers every year were leaving uh, De Portola or you know one of these other schools or Scripps Ranch or something, you would they would there would be stories like CBS eight would show up and be like, these parents are worried about teachers leaving this school. And it's just an expected outcome for, for this, for these other schools. It's just the way it is there. It's the same way I did a big story a a few years ago about AP classes, uh, an AP class that was shut down at Lincoln high school. And I didn't get much traction out of it, but then they shut down a few or planned to just plan to, at Patrick Henry and the whole community explodes. You know, it's just like, there's just something wrong where we just assume that that's the, the area going there. So no, I wasn't persuaded necessarily by his, his take on that. The point is, if, you, if you're having trouble keeping people or recruiting them to certain areas, you need to think about, A, is there a culture problem? Or B, is there a pay and incentive program or problem? And if you've just X those both out and say, no, it's just, you know, it's just part of life. Like that's just hopeless and kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Is it so the school board has been against incentives and the unions too? Do they have the same reasoning or? I think if you, that? I think if you broke down the union's reasoning, they, they, they would see it as a slippery slope that once you start to pay, you know, somebody more for X, then somebody's going to say, well, you should pay more for higher, achievement or merit pay and that's a that's been a big uh fight for them for a long time like you don't want to pay people based on the outcomes of these tests that they can't really control what goes into them that sort of thing um and so there that you once you start like adding incentives and and distinctions in pay you can really go down a slippery slope of inequity uh across the sort of adult ranks and so that balance between the inequity across the adult ranks versus the inequity of experience of the kids is kind of like the ever living story of education. I think the uh, it's a great story. Anyway, we do have a new reporter starting on education. He got a Scott talk the other day, uh, Jacob McQuinney, and I'm excited for him. If you have story ideas, get it to him. 
And you can see all of our education stories, including the latest one here from Will Huntsbury at voicesandiego.org slash education. We're going to take a quick break on the other side. Keats has got the receipts. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Still think this isn't getting enough attention. So the UT first broke the story about a, a developer, affordable housing developer in Pacific Beach that has succeeded in convincing the state that it should be allowed to build higher than San Diego's 30-foot coastal height limit allows because it's taking advantage of the state's density bonus program, which allows them to build higher regardless of local laws if they build affordable housing to a certain degree on their site. And the implications of that are, of course, that if you build those affordable units, you can pierce that 30-foot height limit without a vote of the people. That The height limit was put in place 50 years ago by a vote of the people and so, again, a lot with of us a, uh, one with one big caveat that uh, that applies only in the area that is covered by the city's coastal height limit, but not the state's coastal zone. Okay, so there's there's a slight uh, area that, that where uh, the 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 coastal zone does not cover that the city's height limit does, and so this distinction will apply only there. Okay, um, which is. Uh, you know, whatever. I I, I just I saved us a hundred emails. I have so. a dumb question. <laughs> Which came first, the state's coastal limit or the city's coastal? Well, the state. What he's saying there is that the state doesn't have a, a coastal height limit necessarily, um, but he's saying it is a coastal zone, and that zone is uh, governed by the California Coastal Commission, and that zone. I think the distinction he's making is that this interpretation of this height limit rule only applies to the city's height limit outside that coastal zone. Uh, there's no actual height limit the state imposes on the coastal zone, is there? No, I mean you could you you could try to do all manner of thing because the coastal zone um, is a discretionary body that could could grant things. The, the The issue was basically the coastal zone was defined. Maybe with maybe a little bit more logic to it about what counts as the coast, whereas the coastal height limit, they needed a very simple 
boundary because it was going on a ballot and they needed to communicate to voters simply where they were talking about doing this. And so they, instead of defining the latitude and longitude of each specific part of it, they just said everything west of the five. Um, Which includes areas. That that includes areas that, A, don't fall in the coastal zone. And that's mostly because I think most logical people would assume that those aren't actually the coast because they aren't. I mean, let's be serious. Like uh, Eastern Pacific Beach over by the car dealerships and stuff is is no one's idea of the coast. And the Walgreens and, on Rosecrans uh, you know, is, in, in Point Loma is not a yeah. uh, coastal yeah. property. <laughs> yeah, those are not surf spots, right? Uh, so, yes. So this ruling, I think, or this decision by the state was really interesting and has potential widespread ramifications for other projects that might do the same thing. And I think what you did in the politics report was try to find out what happened, like how this decision came. And you found, I think, something interesting that the city wasn't exactly excited about this. Yeah, they kind of had to be dragged along, basically. So we knew that the developer had put in their their proposal with the city, including their sort of legal argument that they were allowed to do what they were proposing. Um, what we didn't know, or, or what these these emails um, and correspondences showed, was that the developer then in March reached out to the state and said, hey, it's been a few months, we submitted this to the city, and we sure aren't hearing anything back. We would like you to, to weigh in here about whether we're allowed to do this, because after all, we're trying to use your, the state's, density bonus law in order to achieve something that you, the state, have decided is a priority, building affordable housing. Um, And so right after that happened, basically, um, the state assigned um, a a staffer to to handle it, to look into this, and um, he set up a meeting um, in early April with uh, somebody from the city's development services department um, and told the developer he was a lot of these emails are between the state and the developer. They were clearly in, in constant communication about this dilemma, about this decision. And uh, the, the developer reached out to him and said, hey, I know you had this uh, this meeting with the city and I'm dying to hear how it went. Can you tell me how it went? And uh, the, the state official responded, well, spoke to one analyst who ended up unable to clearly comment, which in itself is a form of comment. The city is standing on attorney-client privilege at this particular moment and is not willing or able to share details of their position or legal reasoning. And then he added that the, the city person said, look, if, you're, if this developer wants an answer, they should just submit the project for formal approval and we'll either tell them yes or no and then they'll get their answer, um, which is not exactly like the uh, sort of uh, – it's, it's not the collaborative process that this developer was getting from the state, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and so it goes back and forth that way with the, the state trying to get the city to talk to it and the developer asking the state what they were hearing and what was going on. Um, the, the developer gets alarmed at that response and says, wow, it sounds like maybe we need to really formalize our push. Um, you know, sort of expresses some confusion about the level of hostility that they're receiving. Um, the, the city attorney's office gets roped into this. The state reaches out to the city attorney and says like, Hey, do you, do you guys have an opinion on the matter? And the city attorney like couldn't 
wash their hands of the matter quickly enough. They're just like, uh, you should be talking to the development services. Yeah. They're the ones who know what's going on. We are not involved in this. Uh, please uh, keep our name out your mouth. This issue, this issue of law and city policy is not our concern at the city <laughs> attorney's office. Yes. The, the, the state at this point starts to sort of express some confusion about how disinterested the city is in providing just a clear set reasoning for how they are making the decision that they're making. Um, and so then the, the, the state is about is getting ready to hold another meeting with the city and the developer reaches out and says, um, Hey, in advance of your meeting today with the city staff, I just thought it was worth repeating. That is not our intention to be in an adversarial confrontation <laughs> with the city. We are just trying to get a timely response on this issue. Um, and so, so, so that I, I think clarifies that like there was sort of a perception that things were getting testy between the developer and the city and that the city was, was not acting uh, in the same way that the state was about this. Um, and so then the, the state um, decides that they're going to, that they are going to take up this issue, that they're going to issue their own declaration on what the policy is here and whether it is true that developers can breach the coastal height limit. Um, and when they do, so they say, look, we're not going to weigh in on your project. We're going to weigh on this issue in general as a whole. And we're going to you know, treat it as a, a, a policy uh, decision that we're making for all developers. Um, and adds at the end, we get calls regularly from other developers and land use attorneys. So this is clearly an issue is clearly broadly known among the members of the San Diego development community, um, which I which I take to mean we believe that there are a lot of developers out there who have had the same thought, have viewed the the legal question here in the same way you have. Um, they just haven't been quite so insistent on on forcing an issue, forcing the issue, and getting a final resolution in the matter. Which, if that's true, if that's the case, then now that there is some resolution on the matter, now that the state has weighed in, you would think that all those other interested developers may suddenly come back and say, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then let's do this. Um, in which case, this would be uh, not just a, a one developer issue, but, but something you could start to see a lot of in that, that little sliver of the coast. Yeah, I, th I think it, and yet another example of the state's housing and community development department having its say over what San yes. Diego's doing. So they're the ones controlling basically the process for the sports arena redevelopment effort. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it seems clear now that that whole effort to centralize the government decision-making about what can be built where at Sacramento instead of here is moving forward. Yeah. I mean, look, like it, it's worth repeating. I know we said this last week, but the uh, set of facts on the table here about the local regulations and the state regulations and what you do when those two things are in conflict, nothing about those has changed any time recently. All of the precedents that the state cited in its decision were decades old. Um, so what has changed is the state's willingness to put its thumb on the scale and get involved and, and settle these disputes. Um, and if that's the case, like this coastal height limit and the state density bonus are not the only local issue conflicting with a state issue that you could come up with 
if you were in the mood to brainstorm all of the different ways these things um, may play out in the future. I mean, the the North City area, all of the suburban areas up in Carmel Valley and Del Mar Highlands and all that, they have their own set of development regulations and have for decades that were imposed by a voter initiative. They have elevated uh, low-income housing requirements and fees associated with them. If the, if this local initiative, the coastal height limit, does not trump the state's density bonus initiative, presumably the state's density bonus also can put its foot on the North City urbanizing areas, elevated inclusionary uh, housing requirements. Um, similarly, the state's density bonus program is not the only state law that has an effect on housing. As you mentioned, the Surplus Land Act is is a state law. So I don't know, can a, could a clever lawyer find a way to argue something related to the state surplus land act and some other local regulation that's getting in the way of the, you know, the full spirit of the implementation of the surplus lands act, whether it, that's at the sports arena or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's like an, especially, I don't think you have to be like all that clever to start tooling out the different, spooling out the different ways that this ruling might have a pretty broad precedent. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this part of San Diego and Ohio. Get the newsletter for this podcast at vosd.org slash pod. That's again, vosd.org slash pod. You'll get updates when we drop episodes, including bonus episodes and extra details and show notes about the stories we go over. Subscribe at vosd.org slash pod. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is our managing editor. Andrew Keats is also managing editor. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>